Well, good morning, everybody. How are you today? It's awesome to be here. My name is Eric Swanson, and I am the Morris Campus Pastor here at Manuka. I am so excited uh, to be here today, like officially be here with you guys. So uh, we have moved down to Morris, and we're pumped to be here. So yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having us. I was halfway with you guys last weekend, but you didn't realize it. So uh, my previous church in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, I've been friends with Jason Domingo, your high school pastor, for a long time. So for years, we've actually done our high school camp together, and that was like my very last hurrah with my last youth group. But we were here with, with Manuka, and so I joked about just riding the Manuka bus home, and so then I was, and I was here this, this whole week. So uh, it was cool to be, I don't know, you guys probably know this, but you have awesome student ministries here at your church. Uh, you know, Marco and Jason, who I've known for a long time, they do a great job. You guys sent over 80 high school students to camp last weekend and uh, a bunch of adult leaders with them. And, and it's just awesome. I got to play volleyball with them and laugh with them and worship with them. And, and it was really, really great. So I was halfway with you guys last weekend. Uh, that many students, though, if you're not yet serving at Manuka Bible Church, I would recommend you consider like junior high or high school because uh, they've got awesome stuff going on and it's, it's a great thing to be a part of. So today we're going to continue this series that's been through the book of Hebrews. So uh, last weekend, Pastor Errol was teaching us from chapter 10, and today we're going to be in chapter 11. So if you brought or have a Bible or a device that you want to use as your, as your Bible, uh, open up to Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, I don't know if you all know, but in the back as you come in, there's a like, little notes we print that you, if you like to follow along and fill in the blank. So if you've got that, I want to give you the first fill in the blank, and it's... Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is known, has been called for a long, long time by scholars and things, referred to as the hall of faith, okay? Hebrews chapter 11 is known and referred to as the hall of faith, just like sports leagues uh, would have a hall of fame of these, you know, great uh, top you know, level kind of people, uh, we have this chapter that we call the hall of faith because it's this amazing story, uh, this amazing chapter, this great list of Guys and girls, people who love God, gave him their life, followed him in great faith, and did amazing things. And so it'll, it'll list all these people like, by faith, he did this. By faith, God used him to do this. By faith, she was, you know, accomplished this. And it's all by faith, it can do amazing things. I don't know if you guys remember all the Rocky movies, anybody still like Rocky movies? You know, the first one's pretty old, but they're still making them. They're on number 19 or something now. And working with students, it's funny to me that teenagers like these movies, and even though they're older than their parents and stuff. And so bad, bad special effects and all, these movies are beloved, right? Like Rocky swings and misses by like four feet, and the other guy still spits blood. And you know it, but we still love it. Like they're just classic movies. The best part for me, I think for a lot of us, is the, the Rocky training scenes, right? Like the music starts to go in the background, your heart starts to beat a little faster, and, uh, and they're inspiring, right? Like Rocky is running up the sides of mountains, and he's like lifting these huge weights and doing a thousand push-ups and upside-down sit-ups and all. And like as I watch those scenes, I get like pumped up. Have you ever been there? Like just the music. I can hear that music even without the movie and be like, I'm, I'm I'm into it, right? But when I'm watching Rocky, I'm like, that's it. Tomorrow morning, 5 a.m., I'm going to wake up, I'm going to drink a dozen raw eggs, and I'm going to like get to working out. Like, I, I believe that I can do anything right now because I'm so pumped up. And then what happens is I do like five push-ups, and I'm like, yeah, that's enough. I'm good. <laughs> like, before I even start to sweat, I've lost the inspiration. I don't know if you guys have done that before, but Hebrews chapter 11 is like 
uh, the Rocky training scene of the Bible. It's this get you pumped, get your faith excited for what, like, you start to read it and hear these stories and you start to say, I could do anything right now. God could use me to do amazing things. If I follow God in faith, he can, I, I can do this too. And like, it is on. I am so in. And like, we get pumped up. We get inspired. It's story after story of miracle and victory and deliverance and God showing up in huge ways. And by faith, they did this. And by faith, the author kind of starts at the beginning and he's like writing a paragraph about each person, like Abraham, blah, 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 blah. And then Moses and all these great things. And then I don't know if he's like running out of paper or ink or something, but he starts to just write like a sentence about each guy. And then towards the middle of the chapter, he just starts listing all kinds of names in the same sentences and like references to other stories that you would have known or maybe stories that you heard in Sunday school had like the flannel graph up. But it's King David and all these guys who did these amazing things and some stories that we know really well. But the verses I want to look at today are actually we're going to pick up at the end of the chapter in verse 35. In the end of the chapter, we read this other group. And this group doesn't feel like it fits with the first 34 verses. This group is the group we don't talk about as much. We, we don't uh, celebrate as much. It feels like kind of a sharp turn in a different direction. So uh, after this long list of, of great, amazing deliverance and victories and everything else and our faith just getting so inspired, like we can do anything for God in this moment, I want to pick up at the end of this chapter in verse 35. It says this, There were others... Who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. And I'm reading Hebrews 11. I'm like, what? Who are these people? These are horrible stories. I don't want to talk about this. Like, the, you had me all inspired, man. It, I was with you on all these amazing stories of faith. But these guys are getting cut in two and tortured. Like, what, what are you talking about? But he keeps going. Uh, they were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. And the first time you read this, you're like, I didn't see that coming. Like, what a downer that was. I was all excited about faith and going with God. And like, I don't want to be like those people. I don't want that to be my story. Why are they included? In fact, at first, I feel like the people that made up the number system started the next chapter in the wrong spot. So if you can imagine, the author of Hebrews is writing a letter to a group of Christians. He wasn't saying like, chapter 12, right? Like, it was years later that uh, a group of people started inserting the numbers so that we could have quick references in this large book. And so... Uh, I feel like the guys that made up the number system put it in the wrong space. Like they should have, right before 35, ended the last chapter because these thoughts must not go together. They don't seem to line up. What we see in the first 34 verses is this big group that I'm going to call successful heroes where God shows up and God does miracles and God does amazing things and it's this great triumph and victory. And at the end, these last few verses are a group I'm going to call suffering heroes. But what's really interesting to notice is that they're still heroes, and they are included in the same list, the same hall of faith, okay? Um, at first, I'm like, I don't, 
I, I don't remember talking about these in Sunday school, right? Like, I remember, like, the dude with the, in the lion's den and then Moses with the Red Sea. I don't remember the flannel graph where the guy gets sawed in two. They didn't teach me that in, six, you know, six-year-old Sunday school class. But, um, so we don't, we don't talk about these. these. They don't get my blood pumping. They don't make me think I can conquer the world as much as the first group of people. In fact, when I first read this, I imagine it, it seems like it must be kind of like that really soft, fast-talking voice that you hear at the end of a radio ad, you know, like, and some were tortured and sodden too, and please call your doctor, and you know, like, like you're not, that's like the fine print, you're not supposed to hear that part, it just had to squeeze it in there for officialness, and so um, we, we, we can like forget these guys sometimes, but uh, it really does belong. Look at the very next verse, verse 39 says this, these were all commended for their faith. These were all commended for their faith. And he's not just talking about these suffering heroes. He's actually summarizing the whole list, the whole chapter, the guys who God used in just miraculous, powerful ways, and the guys who followed God and suffered anyways. And he says, God was proud of them all. God was with them all. They weren't being, this other group, they weren't being punished. God wasn't angry at them. It wasn't like God forgot about them or wasn't aware of what was going on in their life, like he was taking a nap or something. It says that they were commended for their faith. He was at work in their life. He was using them in his sovereign plan as these heroes of the faith. He leaves them in this hall of faith to say like, hey, I was with them. I was at work in their life. I was using them right where they were. It's just a kind of a, a different a different story than they, that you might have expected as you read the first part. I grew up, and uh, probably since high school, I remember just kind of always having this big belief in my life that God wants to use me to do great things. I just believed that. It was kind of modeled for me, my, my parents and my grandparents, uh, youth pastors, people that I looked up to, you know, they had great faith in God. They expected God to do great things. They kind of built that into me, and I believe that. But it's not like, a, you know, who do I think I am? It's not an arrogance kind of thing. I believe that all Christians should expect that God wants to use them to do great things. Jesus was talking to his disciples about when he was going to be gone someday, and he said, and you will do even greater things. Another time Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, but if you remain in me, you will produce great fruit. Jesus is always telling his disciples and his followers that I want to use you. I'm going to work through you to do great things. I want to show you one more verse in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2.10 says this, for we are God's handiwork. Or your version might say, you're God's masterpiece. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared when? In advance. Good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. Here's the thing. Before God even made you, he made plans to use you. I think all Christians should live with this expectation that when we go with God, he has plans to use us because he told us so. Before he made you, he made plans to use you. He prepared good works for you to walk in in advance. And he says, follow me, get on board with what I'm up to, and I will use you to accomplish great things. That's awesome. All Christians should believe that way. So I remember like, uh, as I was finishing up high school, I felt like God was like, leading me to go to Bible college. It's just one of those things over the, the course of a couple months and different things that were happening in my life and praying about it and talking with people and really uh, some crazy conversations where I just felt like God kept kind of telling me this. And I was like, all right, God, I, I will go to Bible college. And I didn't really know the end of the story or what he was up to, but I'd take that step. And then the next couple of years while I was at Bible college, I felt like God was saying, I want you to be a youth pastor. So I actually switched my major and and studied like youth ministry and then for the last 15 years you know, I got married got out of college and and I've been a youth pastor 
And it's been fun, and there's been some really cool things, and I've seen God at work. But man, let me tell you, there was a lot of times where it was not what I expected. And I, don't, I never made a list of like what I expect God to do, but in my mind, it's just like, I expect God to do great things. Like, maybe I'm the next Billy Graham, and thousands of people are going to show up, and they're all going to give their lives to Jesus, and like, it's just going to be miracles happening every single day of my life, you know? And I don't know exactly what I expected, but it was big, because I've always believed that God wants to use me to do great things, and so I'm just waiting for these great things. And I remember a few years into our life, our marriage, our family, we had three kids, I was at my third church, and man, leaving a church is, is sad, and it's hard, and I just remember being really down and being frustrated, being angry at God. Like, God, where are you at? Where are these great things? I gave you my life. I went to college where you said to go to college. I moved my family. I'm trying to honor you. I'm trying to follow you. Like, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying. And where's the results? You know, you pour your life into some students and they don't give their life to God. And, and, and you, you give your life and your family to this church and it doesn't last for a long time. And I just remember being really frustrated and kind of waiting and like wandering with God and frustrated. And a few years ago, I was reading Hebrews chapter 11 and I got to the end. And it was one of those moments where I was reading God's word and I felt like he grabbed me by the face and looked me right in the eyes and said, both groups were commended by their, for their faith. And it felt like God was saying, I could put you in either group because I'm God and I was with them and I had great plans to use them and I was at work in their story too, but you don't always get to do the miracles and see the Billy Graham kind of crowds. And so I just felt like God was putting me in my place and saying, I'm God and I can put you in either group. Here's what I learned that day. God doesn't owe me, he owns me. Because I was in this place where I just felt like I deserved all these results. I deserved all this sweetness. And I felt like if I just followed God well, it'd be like rainbows and butterflies every single day, right? And so I, I really I felt like, God, eventually you're going like, to pay me back big time because I've just been trying so hard to follow you and, and being faithful and, and, and going. And so where's the results? I felt like God owed me. And in that day, I was reading these verses in this other group, and I felt like God's like, I don't owe you. I own you. See, God created me, and he created you. He owns us. He sent his son to die in my place, and he sent his son to die in your place, that you were bought with a price, purchased by the blood of Jesus, a ransom paid for your soul. He owns us. He doesn't owe us. If he never does anything else for me the rest of my life, he's done so much, I could never pay him back. Who am I to expect that he owes me? And I was just put in my place that day, and I had such a change of heart that I had to worship God in a new way. So here, I don't know if this is for you this morning, if you're kind of feeling how I felt, but I just want us to say this together. God doesn't owe me, he owns me. Ready? One, two, three. God doesn't owe me, he owns me. One more time so it sinks in. God doesn't owe me, he owns me. That's hard to say. That's hard to mean. That's hard to live. Because there's times where we feel like, God, I've done the right thing and I'm suffering it cost me. It, I didn't see the rewards. I didn't feel that fuzzy feeling. And sometimes we feel like we're waiting for God to pay us back because he owes us. And we need to remember, especially if you're a believer in Jesus, we've given our life to him. It's the idea of saying, I'm all yours. Use me however you want to use me. My life is in your hands. You don't owe me. You own me. If you're taking notes, uh, this is your next one. It said, I, I wrote this down. God doesn't need your permission, but he wants your submission. See, he's God. 
He doesn't need to like check in with me before he makes a decision or does what he wants to do. He's got perfect plans with perfect reasons behind them. And he doesn't need me to give him a thumbs up before he does it. He doesn't need our permission. He can do what he wants. He will do what he wants, regardless of what we think about it. But what's really cool is he wants us on board with what he's up to. He wants our submission. He wants us to submit our heart to what he's up to, our desires to his will. He doesn't need our permission, but he wants our submission. It's kind of like this, uh, this kid that was on one of my baseball teams. So the last few years, I've been a uh, coach. For my, I've got twin boys. They're now 11. And for the last few years, they've done basketball and baseball. And so as they started like, playing in official leagues and they needed parents to volunteer, I was like, I'll volunteer. And so I became coach. I don't remember <laughs> the first time we were on our way to our first practice. My boys were seven. They're both in the back seat. We're driving to our first practice. And they're like, Dad, I'm so glad that you're our coach. You're going to be an awesome coach. And I was like, thank you. Like, I really need the approval of seven-year-olds. That means a lot to me. And then uh, my one son, I'll never forget this, he goes, yeah, because you really like sports and you're good at yelling at people. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you? You know, like, is that a compliment? Like, that's what you think it takes me? Because so I'm like, all right, well, either way, I'm, you're stuck with me. So the last few years I've been coached, a couple of years ago, uh, I was coaching this baseball team. We had little boys on our team. And we had too many kids on like, our roster. So every inning we'd have three or four kids on the bench. And then I had to keep track of who's in and where they go and, and switch them out so everybody got turns to play. And there was a kid, he had been on the bench last inning. And then when we we're going back to the field, I was telling everyone to play. And he looks at me and he goes, I don't want to play that position. And I was like, who are you, little boy, to talk to me? I'm all in charge here, you know? And, and, but I was like, listen, if you don't want to play that position, I got somebody else that'll play that position. Why don't you stay on the bench one more inning? And that's what he did. And then going forward, he's like, I'll try. I'll play whatever position you play because I'd rather play a position than not play at all, right? But like, if you trust the coach and you want to help the team win, you go where the coach says. Like, who are you, eight-year-old, to talk to me about where you should play? I'm just trying to get everybody in here. But it's kind of the same way with God. That sometimes we want to tell God, where we belong, how to use us, right? Like, who are we, the created ones, to tell our creator how to best use us? I think he's got a pretty good idea. Who are we, the ones who are saved, to tell our Savior what position we want to play? But we do this. We start to have these expectations from God, and these, uh, what goes from a prayer request comes an expectation, and then we get bitter when we don't get our way. And it's like an eight-year-old telling the coach, I don't want to play that position, and sometimes I feel like, you know, God doesn't need our permission and he'll find someone else to play that, but we might miss out on being used in the ways that he wants to use us. Everybody wants to play quarterback, though. Like, I don't know if you're an NFL fan. We finally got preseason going and the real season's coming up and for Bears that we actually have some excitement for once in a while. And so uh, everybody, especially little boys growing up, we all want to play quarterback. Quarterback gets the ball on every play. So they, you know, they, they have the most fun. And quarterback gets all the glory if the team wins. And quarterbacks are the ones that you see on TV commercials. And they're the ones that you would recognize if they're walking down the street. And the rest of the guys, you know, they got their helmet on. You don't know their names and you don't know their faces and they don't get any glory. In the NFL, the quarterbacks by far make the most money. Their paychecks are way bigger than everybody else's paycheck. And everybody wants to be the quarterback. But the problem is, on any NFL team, one guy gets to be the starting quarterback, and there's 52 other guys on the team. And they've got to do their part. And they don't all get the glory, they don't all get the huge paycheck, but they get to be on the team. And on top of that, there's a whole bunch of other guys who are on the practice squad who sweat and beat their brains out all week, and they don't even get to dress on Sunday. 
And every little boy dreams of being quarterback, but eventually, if you can make an NFL team, you'd rather be on that team as a blocker or a bench warmer than not on the team at all. And it's kind of the same way with God. It's sometimes we're like, God, I just want to be the quarterback. I want all the glory. I want all the huge, awesome stories. I want to see you do miracles and everything else. And God may call us, you know, he may call you to be the quarterback someday, to be a successful hero. But a lot of other times, it's like he asks us to keep our head down and block. And it doesn't feel as great as we imagine, and it's not always shutting the mouths of lions and parting the Red Seas. It feels like very mundane. Or even worse, sometimes it feels like I did the right thing, and I feel like I'm suffering in some way for it. And I don't know if we'll be sought in too, but there's definitely ways where we feel like when we follow God, it costs us. And that is really hard to swallow. But we have to know that God is the coach, and he does know best. And Who are we to tell him how to use us? Here's the thing. God made you just the way he made you on purpose. Like I always wish I was like six foot six so I was better at sports and stuff. And you know what? If God wanted me to be six foot six, he could have made that happen. But he wanted me to be short and not jump very high and sit the bench on all the teams I played. And so, you know, but a lot of times we wish we were taller or smarter or funnier or or something er. And it's like, no, no, God made you. If he wanted you smarter, he could have done that. He made you just the way he made you. He didn't make a mistake. He made you this way. This is really what I think the reason, uh, the, kind of the meaning of that at verse Ephesians 2.10 is that God prepared these works in advance for each of us to walk in, but he made us with great purpose. He made you on purpose, and he made you for a purpose, to do what he's called you to do, to play your role. So we can trust that he's a good coach because he's a good God. You can trust that God never makes mistakes. He's never scratching his head. He's never trying to figure out as it goes. He never makes mistakes. He's a good, good God. You can trust that God loves you and he has good plans for you. And you can trust that he will use your life, your story, your experiences, wherever you've come from, whoever you are, he wants to use you if you submit to his will and have faith in any situation and go with him. He will use you to accomplish awesome things, to reach people that don't yet know Jesus, to do things that matter for eternity. But who are we to tell God where we should play? Um, one of the things I, that we talk about a lot, me and my boys, is like being a good sport, right? Whatever sport you're going to play, you win some, you lose some, but you got to have a good attitude. You got to be a good sport. And so we talk about like, you can win and be a jerk, you know, or you can be a good winner and you can, you can be a sore loser, but you can also be a good loser. You're gracious in defeat, just like you can be gracious in victory. About Two weeks ago, I got to see my boys be both in the same week in a matter of a couple days. And I was really, really proud of them. So uh, this year on on our baseball league, it was the first year that we actually had playoffs. And so um, every team makes the playoffs, but you feel really special. And so uh, we we had our first playoff game on Tuesday night. And so all the families are there even earlier than normal. And it's playoffs. It's like huge. Like we all feel like major leaguers and it's a big, big deal. And like Seriously, half the kids on my team can't catch or throw. But it's playoffs, right? And so, big time. And uh, we play and we win, and so we get to go to the championship game. And uh, I was really proud. So, like, after the game, uh, you make the boys kind of go through the line and say good game, whether you mean it or not. Like, that's what they have to do. But then all the parents park in the same parking lot from both teams. And so, uh, we're in the parking lot, and we're seeing, like, some of the boys in the other jerseys with their families walking. And I felt like my boys, like, were very genuinely, you know, congratulating them, saying good game, and just being good sports. And I was proud of them. Thursday night is the championship game. And we basically got, we got killed. <laughs> and I was even more proud of my boys that they were good losers than they were good winners. 
that they weren't complaining or whining or, or pouting, that they had good attitudes, they congratulated the other team. As a dad, I was so proud that they could lose the championship game and still have good spirits and good attitudes. You know, if you watch sports, these are the guys that we like to cheer for. We've all seen guys that win, but they're not likable. My favorite players or coaches or teams are the ones who, after they lose a match or a game, they're gracious and they're genuine and they can congratulate the other team and they can take it well and have a good attitude. It's like, I'm going to cheer for that guy next time. I'm going to cheer for that team next time. I'm going to cheer for that coach because that's the kind of guy that's attractive to me. That's the kind of team, the kind of personality that I'm going to cheer that would actually win because they're gracious in defeat. And it's the same thing with following God. You know, in, in sports, you can be a good winner or a good loser. You can be a, 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 a good loser or a sore loser. But if, if you're a, a sore loser or a sore winner, that's a huge turnoff, right? No one likes that guy. But in victory or defeat, you can be gracious. And that's a huge attraction. And that's, I think, how God wants to use his people. That whether we have great successes in following God or we feel like we suffer for following God, when we have a good attitude and we follow in faith and submit to his will anyways, that might be the most attractive thing to someone who doesn't yet know Jesus. That they would see Jesus followers who love God anyways. It's easy to love God on the good days, but how attractive is it when we are good losers? That we're like, this is not exactly what I wanted, but I'm going to go with God anyways because I trust him. That is so attractive. I don't know if you've ever thought about how the way you submit to God, especially when it's unfun, may be the way that he uses you the most. Maybe the thing that's most attractive to other people. God may call you to knock down giants or lead great ministries or shut the mouths of lions and do these amazing things, or he may call you to suffer for the name of Jesus. But either way, it takes great faith. Those same guys who knocked down giants and part of the Red Seas and did all those things that we see in the first 34 verses, they're praised for their faith, not what they did, but what God did through them. And it takes faith to be a successful hero. But it also takes faith to be a suffering hero, that you don't just kind of close your eyes and wish it to be over, but you stick it out with God, you sing his praises, you still stay close to him. By faith, he will use you to do great things. When I first read this chapter, I'm like, I don't really like those last few verses. That doesn't make me feel all good inside. But as I've thought about it, I'm actually really glad that God included this other group at the end of the chapter. Because if he didn't, I think we'd be really disillusioned right? Like every time you follow God, it works out and he does miracles and he has victory in store. And like we'd be led to believe that if I pray for healing or a job promotion or whatever I'm asking for and I'm trying to follow God and I feel like this is a healthy God honoring prayer request and I don't get it, it must be my fault. And I don't have enough faith. I should have prayed more, prayed better or prayed smarter or believed harder or something like that, right? But he says, no, there's people who I love and I was with and I'm proud of and I used And some of them, it didn't go the way they hoped. And it wasn't comfortable. And it wasn't fun. And so it's not all, we can't just blame ourselves and say, I needed more faith. I needed to pray better. It actually helps me not be so disillusioned. We get to see that this this group is also in this hall of faith, called heroes, commended for their faith, that this group made God proud. He was proud of them. This This group made God known. He was at work in their story, even though it was unfun. No matter what God calls you to, and my guess is for all of us, there's going to be moments where we feel like the successful hero. We see God move in great ways, and it's awesome, and we celebrate that. But there's going to be other days or seasons where we feel like, I've been trying to stick it out with God, and I don't feel it. I don't see the results. I'm not, where's the great things that he promises? Both take faith and endurance. 
One way I know that is the same chapter in Hebrews 11, towards the top in verse 6. Hebrews 11, 6 says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. If we're doing whatever we do without trusting and believing and having faith in God, he's not pleased by that. But I believe the opposite is true. That whatever you do in genuine, humble faith in God, it pleases him. And he can use that to do things that we might not understand, we might not see for a while, but we can trust that he's a good coach and he knows what he's up to. I think that we, to, to do this, we need to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. So there's this time where uh, Jesus' disciples come to him and they're like, teacher, teach us how to pray. And he, and he kind of says what we call the Lord's Prayer. And in that, he says to pray that your will would be done. That when we pray, we would say, you know, God, you know, here's what I'm asking for. I mean, please heal my aunt or please do that. And it's not bad at all to bring your requests to God. And he hears those and he loves us. And our prayers, you know, move the heart of God. But I kind of imagine myself like standing before the king of kings, like in this gigantic throne room where I don't deserve to be. And he gives me a split second to talk to him. And whatever I want, I can ask for. And so I, I try to imagine that I would say, please hear my requests. But please do what you know is best. Because you're the king of kings. You're bigger than me and you're more powerful than me and you're smarter than me. And so can we pray like Jesus taught us, your will be done. Here's what I hope happens. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Here's how I'm asking you to move. But what I really want is for you to do whatever you think is best. I'm going to submit to that, believing that you have me to go through this for good purposes. That we realize that God doesn't owe us. He owns us. I want to wrap up today by looking at actually the next couple of verses. And they're in a different chapter. They're, they're Hebrews chapter 12. Sometimes we kind of quit at the end of a chapter. But again, imagine the author of Hebrews is, is writing a letter. And then later on, we put these chapters and verses in just so we can reference it. So right after this long list of this, these heroes of the faith, successful heroes, suffering heroes, uh, after these lists, he, he starts a new thought, but it's totally connected. And so look at Hebrews chapter 12. We're just going to read the first three verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, now that idea of cloud of witnesses is the, like all these people that I just talked about, and it's not an exhaustive list, but all these people who had faith and follow God, it's like we're running in a track meet or something, and they're in the stadium cheering us on. We have them as our example to look up to and to emulate, and this is this cloud of witnesses. Since, since we're surrounded by them, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I love that phrase, the race marked out for us. See, I think God has marked out a race for you. That you would run it in faith that he knows best. And it might look different than the person sitting next to you. It might be a different race marked out that, that you hoped for. But God has marked out a race if you would run it in faith that he would accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish it if we will run it with faith. And he says to do so in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And this is crazy. He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know, Jesus would have preferred not to have to die a, a shameful, brutal, uh, horrible death on the cross. You know, be, before he was arrested, he prayed to God that if there's another way, he would do it. But then he said, but I'll do whatever you call me to do. Not my will, but yours be done. And somehow he went to the cross and considered it joy. 
Not that it was easy or fun or comfortable, but he knew that even through his suffering, God was going to accomplish great things. And so he considered joy the cross. Isn't that amazing? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, verse 3 is really what I, I want to think of in light of this list of heroes, successful and suffering. He says this, Consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the, the, the person that wrote Hebrews, this letter to Christians, this is years after Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended back into heaven. And the church has been growing, but his followers have also experienced a lot of suffering. And he knows that it's hard, and he knows that it's tiring, and he knows that it's hard to have faith in those moments. So he's writing this letter to encourage them, to inspire their faith. And he shows them this list of successful heroes, and God can do anything. And whatever he feels like doing, he doesn't need your permission, but he can do miracles, and he can bring victory. He might not always do that. But by faith, he will use you if you follow him and submit your, your life to his hands. And he says, so just remember when, it, when, the, when it's really tough to follow, when you feel like you've suffered even though you've done good, remember Jesus, who deserved, he was totally innocent. He didn't deserve what he got. But he endured the cross with joy because he knew that God was at work through his suffering. And he says, when you consider him, that'll help you not grow weary and lose heart. If you're here this morning, you feel like, yeah, I feel like more of the suffering hero lately. He says, think about what Jesus did and how well he did it so that it pumps you up. When I think about all that Jesus did for me, how well he did it, the faith that he had and what he accomplished for me, it starts to pump up my faith again. It starts to be like that Rocky music comes back into my brain where I'm like, I want to follow God like Jesus. I want to honor God like Jesus. I want to endure suffering like Jesus. I want to have great faith no matter what. See, Jesus is the perfect example. He was a successful hero and a suffering hero. He had high highs. You know, he fed like 10,000 people with a fish and a half or something. Like, he did miracles. He did all these amazing things, but he also suffered greatly. And and he did both by faith for God's glory. And I like to think about this. Jesus accomplished more through his suffering than all of his successes. Because it was his suffering and death on the cross that paid the price for my sin. And made a way to be right and righteous with God for anyone who believed. He did that through suffering and death. And through his faithful following, no matter what, God used him to accomplish great things. And when I consider his example, it pumps me up. I pray that it would do the same for you, that we consider Jesus, who endured and was a suffering hero, that we would not grow weary and lose heart. So here's how I want to end today. I want to I pray with you. I want to pray for you. Uh, I want you to stand up so we can pray. And uh, before I pray for you, before we pray together, I want to just give you a moment, maybe a minute here, where you can just talk with God and just on your own, where you're at, pray. And uh, if there's something that you feel like you need to talk to God about, I just want to give you space to do that. Maybe you're like I've totally been where you feel like God owes you and you just need to confess that to God and say, listen, God, I'm all yours. You don't owe me. You owe me. Whatever, whatever kind of conversation you want to have with God, I just want to give you a moment to have that right now.
And Heavenly Father, I just want to pray for every person in this room, God, myself included, that you would give us the strength, the endurance of faith to follow you. It's easy to love you back when we're all happy and comfy. It's tough, especially if we feel like this is not easy, and I feel like I've gotten myself here by trying to honor you. God, would you give us the strength and the endurance to love you back, to trust you, that you are a good God, you never make mistakes, you have good plans to use this that you prepared in advance. God, I thank you for the inspiration that we can actually draw from these suffering heroes, that they followed you well, that you were proud of them, that you used them to make you known. God, I pray that this week we would go and live a way that with good attitudes in great faith we would make you known to everyone who sees us, that we would give you the glory in our, our best successful moments and we would give you all the glory in our worst moments as well, that you'd be proud of that, that you would use that. We know that if we submit our life to you, you will use us to accomplish awesome things, eternity kind of mattering things. And so we thank you for inviting us to be a part of what you're up to. I pray that we will be a church full of people who submit our lives to God. We submit our future to you, trusting that you can do more with us than we would ever imagine. And we thank you for that. I pray specifically for anybody right now who feels like a suffering hero, who's just struggling. God, I pray that um, your example of these men and women, and especially of Jesus, would give us the, um, the freshness of faith to not grow weary and lose heart. Pray that you'd surround that person with believers to encourage them. But Jesus, I pray that your love would feel so real to them right now that you'd be near to them and they would just know it and they would follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we will see you back next week for another week in Hebrews. Have a great rest of your day.